Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you want to turn with me to the book of Mark, uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. If you can choose your translation, uh, we're looking at the NIV, okay, the New International Version. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. This is the reading of God's word. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Uh, Well, if you've been with us all summer long, we are in a series called Unlearn and Relearn. And uh, every week, we're looking at one kind of dangerous or destructive habit, practice, or mindset uh, that we believe God is calling us to unlearn in this season. And then we're asking, what can we replace that habit, practice, or mindset with that allows us to live the life Jesus intended us to live? And so each week, if you've noticed by now, there's a pattern, you know, we've talked about from fear to faith, from comparison to contentment, um, right, from control to surrender. And today, the title of the sermon is From Spectators to Servants. Okay, uh, so uh, what do we need to unlearn? That's the first question we're asking. And it's a spectator's mindset, okay, a spectator's mindset. Um, I realize that many of you here were born after the year 2000, which means that uh, you have never heard of the movie Gladiator, okay, which is a tragedy because it's one of the greatest movies of all time, okay? And uh, in the movie, um, for those of you uh, who, ha- who were privileged enough to be able to grow up with this movie, uh, you have uh, this former general in the Roman army, Maximus, who's set to be executed, uh, but then he gets caught, uh, he escapes and then gets caught by these slave traders and then is forced to become a gladiator. And so he, he essentially has to fight to the death in this packed coliseum full of rabid people. And, uh, you know, there's this epic scene when he's just, he gets into the arena and he's going ham on everyone. And then he turns to the crowd and he's like, are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? And, and uh, I was watching that clip this past week, and sometimes I feel like, I feel like that as a pastor. You know, um, I'm obviously not killing anybody, but um, a lot of times I think the way that we've done church here in the West, and you've heard the saying that often in churches, 10% of the people in churches do 90% of the work, right? And, 
Uh, oftentimes, I feel like you have these volunteers, you have staff, you have this designated group of people that are kind of considered the Navy SEALs of a church who do all the work of ministry. And at the end of the day, they got like blood dripping down their faces. They're exhausted. They're burnt out. And they're looking at everyone else being like, are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? And I feel like more than ever, the church here in the West has become a vendor for religious goods and services. It's a place where people come to get something. They come for a show. They want to be entertained. They want to feel something. They want an experience. And when they don't get what they came for, when they don't get, what, when they don't get their money's worth, oftentimes they're gone. And we've all been there. You know, many of us have church hopped before where something wasn't quite to our liking and we're gone. And we have a name for this in our culture. It's called spectators. It's people who come for the show. It's people who go to a concert or to a sporting event because they want to see something. They want to feel something. They want to marvel at someone's ability. They want to watch someone perform. And I have nothing against concerts. I have nothing against sporting events. I'm so glad uh, these things are starting to open up again. But when you think about it, so often we've brought that mindset into the way we think about our relationship with Jesus Into the, way, into the way we think about church and faith in general, right? And the, and the pandemic really didn't help this because for basically a year and a half, the pandemic turned all of us into spectators, right? Um, you know, I got to admit, even for myself, it was nice to be able to wake up on Sunday morning, not have to do my hair, not have to change. I could get a cup of coffee in the middle of the sermon, I got to watch um, our musicians uh, give us amazing music week after week. And it's no surprise that pastors all over the world right now, churches all over the world are reporting like a huge shortage of volunteers post-pandemic. Because I think a lot of people realize, man, it was nice to just watch church. It was nice to just get something and experience it from the sidelines, but not to have to do anything about it. It was nice to experience the church, and we've kind of forgotten what it means to be the church. You know, I would say that we live in a culture right now um, where there is a huge epidemic that is literally programming us to be consumers and spectators, where everything revolves around giving people what they want when they want it, because if a company is unable to do that, there are millions of of other companies that will do it, that will give you what you want when you want it. You know, um, Medium ran an article in July of last year that talked about how the most successful religion in the history of the world and the religion that has had the greatest impact on Christianity is the religion of consumerism. It's a religion that demands that our needs be met. It's a religion that prioritizes our preferences and our convenience before those of others. It's a spectator's religion. Um, I'm listening to a podcast right now. Uh, if you're into podcasts, have a long commute, I would recommend it. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it is a fascinating but very sobering podcast. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Mars Hill, Mars Hill was a church that in the 90s and early 2000s, hugely influential megachurch in the Seattle area, 
led by a remarkably gifted pastor, Mark Driscoll, amazing preacher, huge personality. Uh, The church grew to like 15,000 people. A lot of people say that uh, Mark Driscoll was kind of like the the first viral internet celebrity preacher. Okay, you had like millions of people downloading his sermons every week. His podcast was the number one podcast. And, and basically, um, the, the, you know, this, this um, podcast is talking about how, for whatever reason, this, this church that was a part of so many people's healing, this church that was a part of so much transformation and bringing the gospel to so many people, uh, because of a long pattern of spiritual abuse, bullying, domineering behavior, financial mishandlings, everything just kind of collapsed overnight. And the point of this podcast is not so much to demonize Mark Driscoll as much as it is to force all of the listeners to kind of re-examine ourselves. How have you and I been complicit in a kind of Christianity, in a kind of religion that turns God into a product to be marketed? How have you and I been complicit in, in, in a kind of religion that turns all churchgoers into customers? Right where at the end of the day, if the customer knows best, give the customer what he or she wants. And when you create a culture of consumers and spectators, do you know where everyone goes? People will inevitably flock to the place where you get the best experience. People will inevitably go to where the life of the party is. They will go where things are happening. And yet there's nothing about Jesus' ministry and life that leads us to believe this is what he intended for the church. Jesus never said, if you follow me, you'll get your money's worth. Jesus never said, if you follow me, you'll get everything your heart desires. No, Jesus says, if you would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And when we read the Gospels, it's often the people closest to Jesus who have no idea what he's talking about. It's often his closest followers, his friends, who never know what he's really about. And that's what we're seeing in our text today. Let me kind of paint the scene for us. The passage opens and Jesus' disciples uh, and Jesus are on their way to Jerusalem. Okay, And because uh, we can read the entire book, we know where they're going. And a lot of people think at this point that Jesus is going to wage a military campaign. He's going to go overthrow the Roman government. But in fact, we know that he's actually going to Jerusalem to die. And it says there were a crowd of spectators following him. And it says they were afraid. And you would think, you got all these spectators following him on his way to Jerusalem. You would think that Jesus would comfort them in their fear. But you know what Jesus does? He actually turns to his disciples and he says, look, this is the third time I'm telling you this, but he predicts his death for the third time. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. You know why I'm going to Jerusalem, right? We've talked about this before, right? I'm going there because the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they're going to condemn me to death. And I mean, I just want to point out real quick that, that if you notice, it's the religious leaders and the teachers of the law who are going to condemn Jesus to death. It's not the irreligious. It's not the unspiritual. It's the spiritual elites. 
It's often the teachers of the law who know the most about the law who are actively opposed to the mission of Jesus. But that's a sermon, another sermon in and of itself. I won't get into that today. But basically, Jesus goes on to say, these religious leaders, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles who are going to mock me, spit on me, and essentially uh, beat me to death. Now, if you just heard uh, one of your best friends, someone you've been following your entire life, tell you that in a moment, he's going to go be humiliated, be spit at, be mocked, be beaten to death, what would the proper response be? I'll tell you what the proper response would not be, and it's what the disciples do. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus has just said, they're going to crucify me. They're going to humiliate me. And the first thing out of James and John's mouth is, can you do for us whatever we ask? Um, Last week, I was out of town for a couple of days. And before I left, I pulled my son Jack aside. He's three years old. And I said, Jack, look, daddy's going to be gone for a couple of days. So, you know, you're the man of the house. Take care of your sister. Take care of your mom. First thing out of his mouth was, can I sleep in your bed? Right? I was like, did you not just hear what I said? Show some remorse. Right? And yet this is what happens. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going there to die. And the first thing out of James and John's mouth is, what's in it for me? And Jesus is so gracious because he responds, I'll tell you, he responds the exact opposite the way I responded to my son. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Like the patience of Jesus. He just poured his heart out. His disciples don't get it. They say, what can you do for me? And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said in verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. These two disciples are lobbying for a seat in Jesus' kingdom. They want something out of Jesus. They want the show. They see following Jesus as a way to get something for themselves. They see Jesus as a means to an end. And Jesus responds by saying, you want to sit at my right and at my left? I don't think you know what that means. You know, uh, there's only one other place in the Gospel of Mark where we see this phrase, at the right and at the left. And it's really interesting. It's in Mark 15. And it's talking about when Jesus was crucified between two criminals at the right and at the left. And Jesus is saying, you want to sit at my right and my left? I don't think you know what that means. I don't think you know that that means you're going to be sitting next to me when I'm crucified. And James and John, they're still oblivious right? They, they're, they're still oblivious because Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In the Old Testament, the cup and baptism, these were metaphors for suffering. And Jesus is saying, can you suffer for my sake or are you just here for the show? He's like, can you suffer? He's basically saying, you want all the benefits of following me, but you don't want the cost. Following me is not about getting something for yourself. Following me is about dying to yourself. And it's sad because they still don't get it. Because without hesitation, James and John say, we can. 
We can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what you're going to do, and we can do that. So can we say that you're right and you're left? Well, in verses 42 to 45, uh, Jesus gathers his disciples around him, and he says, look, you know, you all know that in this culture we live in, to be great, to be a leader, is to be served, is to get something for yourself, is to sit by and watch other people cater to your needs. And he he says, not with you. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is so fascinating. Um, You know, uh, you have these two disciples willing to watch Jesus die, willing to sell Jesus in uh, for personal gain. And a lot of times when we read the Gospels, we think about Judas as being the one bad apple, right? He was the one disciple who didn't get it. He was the one disciple uh, who was willing to give Jesus up for just a few shekels of silver. And yet here, we see that it's not just Judas. It's everyone. It says the ten were indignant at James and John's request, and they're not indignant because they're standing up for Jesus. They're pissed because James and John beat them to the punch. They want the reward too. You have all 12 of these disciples willing to watch Jesus die as long as they get something for themselves. And Jesus says, following me is not a spectator sport. You got to be a servant. And this is the second point if you're taking notes. What do we have to relearn? A servant's mindset. We have to move from being a spectator to being a servant. Friends, how many of us have approached our relationship with Jesus like a spectator? Wanting Jesus to cater to our needs. Wanting to get something out of the church, but unwilling to die to ourselves for the sake of others. We want all the benefits of the church. We want the connection. We want to be fed. We want amazing children's ministry programs. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, are you willing to die for my sake? I don't know how many times people have said, Jason, I really think we need X, Y, and Z at this church. I say, that's a great idea. Can you head that up? No, 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 no. I think we just need X, Y, and Z. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, man, we have such a shortage of leaders in our church. And I say, I totally agree. Can you lead or at least mentor some of the younger people in our community to lead? They're like, no, 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 that's not for me. I just feel like we need more leaders. We want the benefit, but we don't want the cross. We want the benefit, but we don't want to die. We want to sit at the right and left of Jesus, but we don't really know what that entails. It's easy to be a spectator. It's really hard to be a servant. Earlier, you heard our community life director, Hannah, talk about a community life orientation that we have coming up uh, on August 8th. Would really encourage you to sign up for this because you're going to get an opportunity to hear all of the different ways Uh, You can get plugged into our community, all of the ways uh, you can serve this church. And and I just want to say this. Uh, uh, This is not to guilt you into serving. Um, That is absolutely not what we want to do. And I hope this doesn't get lost in translation. Uh, We don't encourage uh, people to serve because God needs us. 
We don't encourage people to serve because we believe the church will crumble without us. No, God will build his church with you or without you. The reason we encourage people to serve is because we believe that in this culture that is daily programming us to have a me, me, me mindset. It's all about me. It's all about my family, my success, my wealth. Serving is an opportunity to get us out of that mindset and habituate us into a lifestyle that says, you first, your needs before mine. And the hope is not ultimately to to grow a big church. The hope is to take that servant mindset outside of the church into the spheres of influence that you're a part of, into your workplaces, into your relationships, into your families, that when people would look at you, they would say, that is a posture of a servant. And like everything else we've been talking about in this series, we don't believe you are just born a servant. We believe everything in our culture actually is programming you to be about me. But we believe this is learned behavior. This is a learned mindset. We have to learn how to be a servant. Now, now one question you might have today is, well, how do I know I have a spectator's mindset or a servant's mindset, right? How do I know today where my mindset is? And I'm going to give you one huge litmus test. How quick are you to complain or criticize? How quick are you to complain or criticize? Now, I'm a big believer in constructive criticism. I think it's necessary. I think you need it to grow. But you know those people, uh, you know, and maybe this is you, who like your entire life, all you love to do is point out the one thing that's always wrong with something. There could be a million things going right and you are still laser focused on the one thing. Your first instinct in every situation is to point out something wrong with it. And let me tell you why that's the first litmus test for those of you who have a spectator's mindset because it's very easy to criticize from afar. It's very easy to criticize when you're not in the game. Uh, Many of you know I spent a lot of my adult life in Philadelphia and Philly sports fans are second to none. They are the most diehard loyal sports fans out there. Um, And I used to love listening to uh, sports talk radio. Um, I used to be a regular caller. I was Jason from Wynwood. Um, I would always call in. And uh, my favorite was turning on sports talk radio the day after an Eagles loss. Okay, and you get all these people calling in out of the woodwork, right? You get Bob from the local deli calling in. And um, it's, it's amazing because when people are calling in after the game, uh, everyone's suddenly a football expert, right? They're a football analyst. They call in, they're like, you know, Carson Wentz doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, you know, how could he not make that throw? He's not clutch, horrible late game management. As if they could do any better. But you see, it's easy to criticize when you're a spectator. It's easy to criticize when you're not in the game, when you're not running away from 300-pound linebackers trying to kill you. It's very easy to be a spectator from afar. It's much harder to criticize when you're actually in the game. Um, 
it's interesting in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, right? And, and he gives maybe one of the most epic summaries of the gospel. And he's talking about the servant mindset of Jesus. And listen to this. This is what he writes. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Such a beautiful, majestic summary of the gospel, but do you know what comes literally immediately after this? It's a section about do everything without grumbling. It's such an anticlimactic moment in Paul's letter. He says, look at the servanthood of Jesus. Look at the mindset that Jesus took in becoming a servant. And then the very next section is do everything without grumbling. Paul is making this connection. He says, if you are truly going to take on Christ's character, if you are truly going to take on Christ for yourself, if you're going to truly take on his mindset of servanthood, you will not grumble you will not complain. Um, you know, I used to be a server at this really small hole-in-the-wall rest, uh, hole, hole restaurant um, when I was in grad school. It was called Bartley's Burgers. And um, it was one of those, like, really small restaurants where, you know, they're con you know, you're trying to turn over tables really fast. I was paid $2 an hour. So everything was tips. So the goal was to, like, get people in, get people out. You try, you, you know, they had you kind of like serving like 10 tables at once. It was wild, okay? Um, and if you've been in a, a server or if you've been in the hospitality industry, you know how hard it is. Like, and, and to be like managing 10 tables and someone's upset with you because you forgot the ketchup, you're like, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm tired, and if you've been a server or in the hospitality industry, um, like I have, when I go to restaurants, it's very hard to criticize my servers because I know how hard it is. I've been there. But again, if you're a spectator, it's very easy to criticize. If you've never been in the trenches, it's very easy to criticize. You know, a lot of people say, Jason, after you've become a week-to-week -week preacher now, um, when you go to other churches and you listen to other preachers, are you like extra harsh? Because you know, are, are you know, because because you know more about preaching. I said no, it's the exact opposite. I'm so lenient because I know how hard it is to preach. So when someone teaches me the Bible and they preach the gospel clearly, I'm like, you're amazing, you're amazing. I think about uh, that Teddy Roosevelt quote. I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard it before. It's like one of my favorite quotes of all time. You'll probably see me post it. Um, we're going to put it on the screen. But he says this, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat 
and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Wow. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the spectator who counts, because at the end of the day, spectators are willing to let others die if it means they get something in return. James and John were willing to let Jesus die as long as they got something in return. But what Jesus wanted them to see was that this wasn't the way they were going to be great. He says, you want to be great, you want to follow me, you got to be a servant. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how do we do this? Okay, this is the last point. How does the gospel help us get there? How can we adopt this mindset of a servant, this mindset of putting others' needs before our own, sacrificing our time, energy, and resources for others in a world that tells us it's all about us? How do we do it? And I'll tell you, maybe you're feeling really guilty right now and you're, you're going to sign up for the community life orientation out of guilt. I'm telling you, guilt is not the way. Performative service, guilt-based service, dutiful service, it works for a little while, but it will not work for the long run. It will not work for the long run. Why? Because it's not rooted in love. Um, many of us here are Asian American, and so in my generation, uh, my parents' generation, um, they were still in a generation where uh, daughter-in-laws were basically slaves to their in-laws, Okay? Uh, they were servants in every way, you know, and not, not in the good way, in a, like in every way. Um, and where they had to wait on their in-laws hand and foot, and it was just understood. Um, this is not the kind of servanthood Jesus is calling us to. That's a servanthood rooted in fear. That's a servanthood rooted in shame, rooted in guilt. And I, I tell you, like, some, in, some daughter-in-laws are great, and they can hold it together for a while, but I'm telling you, I, I think I've lived long enough now to see that at some point in time, this kind of servanthood will always lead to bitterness, resentment, burnout, and exhaustion. It cannot sustain itself. No. The way we adopt the mindset of a servant, the kind of servanthood Jesus had in mind, is that we first have to understand how much we've been served by him. It is the only way when you realize, wow, I have been served by Christ and we serve out of an abundance of what Christ has already done. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because Christ first loved us. We serve because we've been served. And do you know how Jesus loved us? He didn't love us as a distant spectator who just told us everything we were doing wrong. He didn't love us as a distant spectator who left the arena 
when we didn't perform, what Jesus did was that he entered the arena. He entered our world and took on flesh and bone. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator of the universe stooped down to our level and rather than be served, said, let me wash your feet. When we come to grips with that reality, I guarantee you, our service to God and our service to others stops being a performative thing, stops being, stops being something we do out of guilt. It is the only fitting response to a God who gave his own life for you and me. So let me just close by saying this, friends. We need to see today that Jesus is the man in the arena. He is the man who face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. He's the man who hung on a cross and gave himself up for you and me. Why? Because he would rather die than to watch his beloved children perish. This is the gospel. It's a gospel that doesn't guilt us into serving God or serving others, but it's a gospel that frees us to give our lives in service of God and others, knowing that we've already been given more than we could ever ask or imagine through the servanthood of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I know I speak for, for many of us in this room, and I know I struggle with this personally, to make following you a spectator sport where the first question on our minds when we come to church, uh, you know, when we think about our faith and think about our relationship with you is what, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this relationship? What can I get? How can my needs and my preferences be met? But God, you showed us that that isn't the way you would choose to be king, that you would not choose to be king by having people serve you but that you would choose to be great by serving others, by getting below them, by washing their feet. And you did that for us. And I pray that this morning we would allow that truth to resonate deep within our souls, that that would inspire and motivate us to now live a life of service to you and to other people. Lord, thank you for this beautiful gospel a gospel that reminds us that the creator of the universe came down to our level to serve us, that we might now serve others in your name. We thank you for this poignant word today. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.